Matthew chapter number 10. And uh, we, uh, we find that this is the first time where Jesus is going to be sending out his disciples. So he called his disciples to him over the first few chapters of Matthew. Uh, they have heard his words, the Sermon on the Mount. They have seen his works, all the miracles that he has done. And now uh, he is going to send them out to do what he has called them to do for the first time. Now he's going to call them back. They're going to analyze it. They're going to go over it. They're going to still follow him for several years uh, before he finally leaves this earth and the Great Commission is given. But this is the first time. He called the disciples to go out and do this. He said, guys, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And so this was kind of natural to them. They, they knew this day was coming at some point. And uh, with the example that Jesus has given to them, they were ready for it. Uh, they heard Jesus teach the heart of a disciple in chapters 5 through 7 with the Sermon on the Mount. They saw Jesus demonstrate the heart of a disciple someone who wanted to follow Jesus and, and love the Father and care for those around him in chapters 8 and 9. And so now it was their turn to live it out. Now, we're going to look at Matthew 10, 11, and 12 today, uh, hopefully. And so uh, we see the disciples being sent out in chapter 10, and then we kind of look at the flip side of the coin, and we see the negative responses of certain people and groups of people uh, to following Jesus. And so I want to start Matthew 10, and I want to start at verse number 34. So Matthew chapter 10 and verse number 34. Uh, let me pause just for a moment. If you would like to get the digital notes, they are available, and so you can scan that QR code, and so I'll give you just a second. Uh, but Matthew chapter number 10 and verse number 34, this is Jesus, the end of Jesus' charge to his disciples before he sends them out. And he ends this way. Verse number 34. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I'm come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it. He that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Now, what is Jesus saying here in these verses as he sends his disciples out? Is he encouraging them to be contentious? Is he encouraging them to go home and fight with their mom and dad? Is he encouraging them to go home and argue with their mother-in-law? That happens anyway. But is he encouraging them? He said uh, in verse number 37, I believe it was, um, 36, and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. Is he encouraging us to go home and make enemies of people in our house? No, we know that's not the case. Uh, what is Jesus talking about here? He is not diminishing the relationships that we have with those around us. He is elevating the relationship that we ought to have with him. He is elevating the relationship that we ought to have as we follow him. He's saying, guys, I have told you the life you're supposed to live. I have shown you the life that you're supposed to live. He's like, now you have to follow me. Following Jesus is it. That's what he's trying to get across here. Following Jesus is it. It's the pinnacle. It's the top. It's the center. Uh, following Jesus is the focus. Following Jesus makes everything and everyone else pale in comparison. 
Following Jesus makes our attempts by ourselves on our own to satisfy ourselves seem bland. Following Jesus makes our attempts by ourselves on our own to find love and acceptance in others seem empty. Following Jesus by ourselves on our own makes our attempts to find peace and joy seem trivial and incomplete. See, what's Jesus trying to say here? Guys, anything outside the context of following Jesus is a lost cause. Anything outside the context of following Jesus is a lost cause. Following Jesus is everything. Uh, and, And I'm not saying that Jesus will not lead you into a certain field, construction, being in the Coast Guard. I'm not saying that Jesus will not uh, lead you to study a certain degree. I'm not saying that Jesus will not give you certain opportunities to use gifts and talents and desires and, and goals and all of that. But if it's done outside the context of following him, then it's worthless. Following Jesus is it. Until Jesus becomes that first desire, until Jesus becomes the one we're following and he allows everything else to fall into place, until Jesus is that first desire, then we'll never find what we're looking for. We can look for it in making money. We can look for it in a certain job. We can look for it in getting a certain degree. We can look for it in reaching certain goals in our life. But if it's done again outside the context of following Jesus, if he's not our first pursuit, if he's not our first goal, if he's not our first love, then it'll be a lost cause. Uh, Jesus at the center. I love what Pastor talked about last week on Easter Sunday morning, his message. If you haven't heard it, make sure you go back and listen to it. Jesus at the midst. Jesus at the center. And that's what it needs to be in our lives. Uh, Jesus is alive and he needs to be at the center. He needs to be at the start. He needs to be in the midst. He needs to be at every turn. Jesus at every decision. Jesus at every moment. It needs to be Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And that's what he's trying to get across to his disciples. He says, fellas, you got to follow me. You got to follow me. You got to follow the will of my father. That's got to be first and foremost. And everything else is secondary. It's not one, two, three, four. No, it's one at the top and everything else is at the bottom. Jesus following Jesus. Listen, Jesus does not want to be an accessory to your life. Jesus does not want to be an accessory to your life. He doesn't want to be something that you hang on the wall claiming that you have Jesus in your life. He doesn't want to be something that you put in your calendar claiming he's in my schedule. He doesn't want to be something that's in your budget saying, I give to Jesus. He doesn't want to be an accessory. That, that was, we'll get to the Pharisees in just a minute, but that was the Pharisees' problem. They wanted God and the religious system and, 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 and Jesus to fit into their plans. They wanted him to, to, to be a part of their plans, to make them look better, to, to, to be a, a notch on their belt. But Jesus said, I'm, I'm, I want you to follow me. I want, I've got to be at the center. I've got to be at the top. I read this quote. God doesn't want to Christianize your life, but to crucify your dreams, desires, and ambitions to seek his. He doesn't want you to Christianize your life. He wants you to follow him. We want you to follow him. Uh, if Jesus, listen, okay, we talk about following Jesus. We talk about uh, following his will, wanting to follow him, wanting to seek him, wanting to obey him. Uh, you, you're doing that this morning. Okay? You've given up this hour or two that you're going to be here in this morning, or more for some of you that are serving. Okay? He was worth something to you to be here. He was worth something for you to get up, 
and, and to come to this place. He'll be worth something for you if you come back tonight. He's worth something to you. But may I submit to you this, and this is what I think Jesus is trying to get across to his disciples. If Jesus is worth anything, then he's worth everything. If Jesus is worth anything, then he's worth everything. If Jesus is worth, Jesus is trying to tell his disciples, guys, okay? If, if, and, and we see that throughout the Gospels, throughout Scripture, uh, those that thought Jesus was worth something but didn't think he was worth everything. They didn't keep following Jesus. They're, they're the ones that Jesus said, follow me, and he said, well, hold on a minute, I've got to go back home and say goodbye to everybody else. Hold on a minute, i got this and such to take care of. The rich young ruler who had the many possessions, wouldn't sell them, went away sorrowing. There are some people where Jesus is worth something, but he's not worth everything. Can, can I tell you that if Jesus is not worth everything, then you're missing out a whole lot. You're missing out on a whole lot. If Jesus is worth anything, then Jesus is worth everything. And I think part of the problem is the reason why Jesus is not worth everything to us and he's only worth something to us and, and we can't seem to get past that hump of making Jesus worth everything is because we're still trying to do it by ourselves. We're still trying to live this life, this Christian life. We're still trying to follow Jesus on our own when that is not at all what Jesus wants us to do because he says this in Matthew, 28, or Matthew 11, verse number 28. He says, come unto me. All ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. See, Jesus is living in a time, and we see this in chapter 12. He's entirely dealing with the Pharisees. But Jesus is living in a time when the people of the day are oppressed by a religious system. They're, 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 they're being oppressed certainly by a political system, the empire of Rome, but they're also being oppressed by the religious system of the, the, the Jewish culture, the Jewish society of the day. Um, and, and Jesus saw that they were being imposed with a heavy burden. I don't have this verse in the notes, but, but if you've got your Bibles, go to Matthew 23 and look at verse number 4. Matthew 23 and verse number 4. and I'm going to read it because I'm there already. He's talking about the Pharisees and it says, For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. He said the religious system of the day is putting a heavy burden on the people. Why? Because it's all about what they have to do to get close to God. It's about all about what they have to do to make themselves righteous. It's all about what they have to do to be good enough uh, to be in favor with God. That was the life of the Pharisees, the religious pursuit of the day, trying to make sure that they were good enough, trying to make sure that everything looked right, trying to make sure that everything sounded right, trying to make sure that everything was scheduled right, trying to make sure that everything was just in order to fit what they had uh, they had figured out what they thought was going to make them accepted by God, the life of holiness. But can I also submit to you this? That there's a lot, and that was a, that was a life of burden to the people. But there are a lot of us that are living lives of burden because we're trying to find other things that only Jesus can provide by ourselves. We're, we're, we're living a life trying to find joy. We're living a life trying to find fulfillment. We're living a life trying to find peace, acceptance, 
satisfaction, uh, success. We're trying to find all those things, and we have this great burden on our hearts and in our minds and in our lives because why? We're trying to find it on our own. We're trying to solve our problems on our own. We're trying to get to a certain point on our own. We're trying to have whatever it is in our lives on our own. Can I say this? Carrying a burden is very lonely. Carrying a burden is very lonely. And there are some times where God will give us burdens. We care for someone. We, uh, we, have, we, we want to reach someone with the gospel. We love someone. Those can be burdens, certainly, that, that we can take up. But when we, on our own, pick up a burden that was never ours to carry, that's a problem. That's a very lonely way to live. But Jesus said, I have not come to give you a burden. I've come to give you a yoke. Look back at Matthew 11, verse number 28. He says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, the people of the day, you who are trying to find something on your own, and I will give you rest. How? Take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What's a yoke? Okay? Those of you that if you are around farm equipment or have studied that at all, you know a yoke is not a one person or one animal instrument. It's meant for two. A yoke of oxen is always at least two. It's two people or two animals or two whatever joining together to carry, to pull, to reach a destination. It's two together. Taking a yoke means that there is someone else there with you. And Jesus said, hey, it's not yours. It's mine. I want you, I'm already in it, Jesus says, I want you to get in it with me. I'm already in it. I want you to join me in the yoke because I am meek and lowly. Not high and mighty like the priest. I am meek and lowly. I want you to join the yoke with me. And together, you'll find rest. See, following Jesus is not a lonely pilgrimage that results in confusion. Following Jesus is not a lonely pilgrimage where we are living life confused and we're searching and we don't know where the end is and we don't know where the, the, the solution is and we can't find this and we can't find that and we're discouraged and we're frustrated and I don't know where I'm going. That's not what following Jesus is. That's religion. That's Phariseeism. Following Jesus is a lifelong that results in rest. That's following Jesus. It's not on our own. Jesus doesn't say to the disciples, follow me, and then he takes off running and they have to go find him. He says, follow me, and they're together. Follow me, and they're walking together, and they're talking together, and they're serving together. That's what following Jesus is. It's entering into a yoke. See, Jesus saw people who were oppressed by a religious system of the day that was all about doing something to achieve what was impossible. But following Jesus must come first. 
Pursuing Jesus must be first. Knowing Jesus must be first. Not, now, not instead of what we do for him. Not instead of serving him. Not instead of working for him. But the source of it. Listen, uh, I heard this uh, statement this week. Everything in the Christian life is a response. Everything in the Christian life is a response. Nothing in the Christian life was ever meant for you and I to do alone. It's always meant to be a response to something that God has done for us. Your salvation, when you trusted Christ, you didn't do anything for that. You put your faith in something that was already done for you. Now the life that you and I live, we don't live by ourselves. It's in response to the salvation that we've been given. It's in response to the relationship that we have in Christ. Serving Jesus, obeying God's word, accomplishing God's will. It's not oppressive when it comes from the yoke. When, when church and when your relationship with the Lord, when serving God, when doing God's will becomes oppressive and you think, man, I don't want to do this it's when it becomes a burden, that ought to be a sign that you're doing it by yourself. That ought to be a sign that you're not in the yoke anymore. It's not oppressive when it comes from the yoke. When it comes from a place of knowing and identifying with who you are in Christ, who he's made you to be, and what he wants to do through you and with you. That's what following Jesus was meant to be. That's what discipleship was meant to be. It's being in the yoke with him. It's being in partnership with him as he leads you to whatever he has for you. Now, as we look at Matthew 11 and 12, we find that some people had a negative response to Jesus. Jesus has told the disciples, I want you to follow me and this is how you're going to do it. This is, this is the only way that you're going to do it, in the yoke with me. But there were some other people in these two chapters that had a negative response to Jesus. And, and we're going to try to get through them in the time that we have left. The first response was doubting. The first response was doubting. Look at Matthew chapter number 11 and look at verse number 1. And for some reason I don't have these verses up there, but I'll read them. Matthew 11, 1, the Bible says, It came to pass when Jesus made an end of commandment, commanding his twelve disciples. He departed thence to teach and to preach in their cities. Now when John, this is John the Baptist had heard in the prison, John's in prison, has been put there by Herod because Herod didn't like what he was preaching about his illegitimate marriage. He sent two of his disciples and said unto them, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Whoa! Time out. John the Baptist, you know, camel skin, leather girdle, locusts and wild honey, John. This guy, he don't take garbage from nobody. This is John the Baptist. This is a guy that pointed his bony finger into the Pharisees' uh, uh, nose and called him a den of vipers, a bunch of snakes. This is John. But John's in prison right now. This is a dark time in John's life. And John, who has stood up for what was right for so long and has sacrificed living in the wilderness so much for the message that he had been given, John was sitting in prison and I bet you John was thinking, I don't got much to show for this. I'm sitting in prison. It wasn't a comfy padded cell with, you know, three square and a hot shower. Uh, John didn't have much to show for what he had done. And in this moment, 
John falls into the trap that so many others do fall into, that we can fall into, who thought Jesus would do more. John thought Jesus would do more. Now, it was while Jesus was on earth, and others of the day thought Jesus was going to do more. And we fall into that same trap. We believe the same lies of the devil that Jesus should have done more, that Jesus could have done more, that, that God hasn't done what maybe I thought he ought to do. We doubt if Jesus really is who he says he is. We doubt if God's really going to do what we thought he could or would do. We're doubting if I really have a purpose or if what I do for Jesus really matters. We get these doubts, and John had them. And if John can get them, can I tell you, anybody can get them. Every single one of us can have these doubts in our minds. But what I love about this response, so that's the negative response, doubting. But I love how Jesus responds to it. Look at verse number four. It says, Jesus answered and said to them, go and show John again these things which ye do hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk and the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised. And the poor have the gospel preached to them and blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended me. And then, and I won't read it for sake of time, but Jesus goes on to go on this big, long monologue of the greatness of John and lifts John up and praises John and said, John was a great guy. And I love how Jesus responds here because he doesn't criticize or respond negatively to John. He said, look, okay, I understand. And so he just tells the disciples to go tell John what? Look back at verse number four. Go and show John again those things which ye do hear and see. The words and the works. Jesus says, hey guys, John, okay, I know you're going through a hard time. I know it doesn't look like much, but I just want to tell you, the proof is in the pudding. The proof is in the pudding. All you have to do is look around. All you have to do is look around, John. All you have to look at what is going on. And he even hearkens back to Scripture in those, those things that he tells John and his disciples to look at, all the people that have been healed and those that have been cleansed and the fact that the gospel was preached. That's really hearkening back to Scripture. Isaiah 29, 18 and 19, uh, chapter 35, verse 5 and 6, and chapter 61, verse number 1, the prophecy of the Messiah in each one of those. And Jesus said, hey, John, the proof is in the pudding. It's there. And he even does this again with Thomas, and we don't take time to look at it, but you know at the end of John, when Jesus is raised again from the dead, and he appears to the disciples, and Thomas is not with them, and, and, and they say, hey, Thomas, Jesus is alive. And he says, well, as long as I, until I can put my hands in the marks in his, in his hands, and in, in, in my hand in his side, I'll not believe. Then a few days later, Jesus appears again, and this time Thomas is with them. And, and if I were Jesus, man, I would have let Thomas have it. I would have just let Thomas have it. It's like, man, you don't want to believe in me, Thomas? There's the door. But that's not what Jesus does. What does he say? He says, Thomas, go ahead. I know you were doubting a little bit, Thomas, but here's the proof. Here's the proof. And so when we have moments of doubt, Jesus gives grace. But can I tell you that grace is designed to direct us to the proof. It's designed to direct us to the proof. And so when you have moments of doubting and struggling and fear in your life, and you're not sure what God's doing, and you're not sure why God's doing it, you're not even sure if God is there right now, okay? Can I, can, don't, first of all, don't compound it by believing that God is angry with you for doubting. 
Don't, don't compound it by thinking, well, God must be mad at me because I'm not sure what's going on right now. Don't, don't fall into that lie. Don't fall into that lie. In moments of doubt, look for the proof. Look for the proof. If you're looking for it, it won't take you long to find it. If you're looking for it, it shouldn't take you long to find it. <clears throat> look for the proof. Look to Scripture. That's what Jesus said. He took John and his disciples. He said, hey, look in the Scripture. You're going to see proof there. Uh, look at the testimony of lives around you that God is working in. And God is doing things in. And God is changing. And God is, God is ministering to and caring for. Remember right now, remember how he's worked in the past. Look for the proof. Jesus responds to, to doubting. The, the problem comes, listen, the problem comes when we doubt and refuse to look at the proof to overcome them. When we doubt, and Jesus says, here's the proof, look for the proof. And we say, nope, I don't believe in it. That's when the problem comes. Because you get to the end of the Gospels, and in Mark, and again, I don't have this verse for some reason, I, don't, I completely skipped this point apparently, but look at Mark chapter number 16. Because we know, obviously, when at the end of the Gospels, Jesus is alive again. We celebrated last week, and, and he appears to different people, whether it's the ladies at the tomb or the two guys on the road to Emmaus or Mary Magdalene. And in almost every single one of those cases, those people went and told somebody else, and they didn't believe them. They wouldn't accept the proof. When we don't accept the proof, when we won't look for the proof, that's when the correction comes. That's when you can expect God to say, okay, now we have to deal with this. Look at Mark 16, look at verse 14. It says, afterward he appeared unto the leaven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. They wouldn't believe the proof. Jesus, the Bible says there, he upbraided them. Can I tell you this? You do not want the Son of God to upbraid you. Okay? Uh... Matt, you, you're in the Coast Guard. I'm assuming you have probably seen someone else, not you, of course, uh, who has gotten chewed out. Okay? Yes. Okay? That's what Jesus did here. But he did not, look what he says. He did not upbraid them because they didn't believe that he was alive. He did not upbraid them because they weren't sure what the empty tune meant. He upbraided them because they wouldn't believe the proof. Because they wouldn't believe those that had seen him and that said he is alive. So when we won't accept the proof, when we won't look at the proof, in those moments of doubt, that's when God says, okay, now we're going to have to deal with this. And so in those moments of doubt, those times of doubting in your life, look for the proof. Look for the proof. Now, we don't have time to go through these last couple of points, so I'm going to skip down to the end. Look at Matthew chapter number 13. Matthew chapter 13, look at verse number 44. Jesus here, chapter 12, he deals with the Pharisees a lot. We get to Matthew chapter number 13, and he starts to tell some parables. And each one of these parables, we could take an entire Sunday school hour and talk about each one of them. So we're not going to. Uh, maybe we'll come back to it at some point. But look at Mark chapter number 13, and here Jesus tells two stories about great treasure. Two stories about great treasure. Look at verse number 44. 
Bible says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hid in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man, seeking goodly pearls, who he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he hath, and bought it. So two stories, great treasure. One is a treasure in a field. One is a pearl of great price. You get the story of the man who has found this treasure in the field. I don't know where he was. He may have been going home from work one day. It had been a long day. It had been a rough day. Maybe it started to rain. He's deciding to take a shortcut home. He's taking a route that he's never taken before. And he decides to go across this real empty field. And somewhere along the middle of this field, he trips on something. And after, you know, blessing God for stubbing his toe... He turns around and he notices something shining. And he says, surely not. Somebody left a soda can or so, I don't know if they had those. Uh, he bends down and he brushes it off and it's yellow. And he digs around a little bit and this piece of yellow is pretty big. And he digs a little bit more and he realizes that he has stumbled across a great treasure. And so he quickly, the Bible says he hides it. He obviously wanted this for himself. He didn't, wasn't going to share this with anybody. He quickly covers it back up. He runs all the way home and he bursts in the door. His wife, who's had a long day with all of their children, says, what in the world is going on? He says, we're selling it all. We're getting rid of it all. They put everything else up for auction. They put it on eBay. They get a yard sale. They sell their house as quickly as they can. Why? Because if he buys the field, he can have the treasure. The treasure was worth so much to him that he was willing to sell everything else. Then you've got this guy who's the merchant man, and his commodity was pearls. And he had black pearls, and he had white pearls, and he had pink pearls, and he had blue pearls, and he had gray pearls, and he had green pearls, and he had natural pearls, and he had unnatural pearls, and he had uh, round pearls, and he had flat pearls. And he had all kinds of pearls. And everything that he did was about finding new pearls. And one day, he stumbled on the pearl of great price. The, I, I looked it up. The, the, the most expensive pearl in the world today is this sucker. The beauty of the ocean pearl. It is weighing six tons and it is five feet high. It is worth $139 million. I don't know if this guy found this pearl or something similar. Some, uh, I read another story of another uh, man in the Philippines who found the largest natural pearl in a clam, a giant clam. And the thing was two feet long and was worth over a million dollars. So this man, this merchant, found this pearl of great price. And he goes home or to his shop or wherever and he says, I only need one now. And he sells every other pearl. He's going on a business sale. Everything's on sale. He sells everything that he can just so he can buy the pearl of great price. Now, let me say two things and then we'll be done. Both of these men were willing to do anything they could for the treasure that they had found. They were willing to do anything to get their hands on this treasure. Man with a field, sell everything. House, possessions, Kids, if he had to, he was willing to sell everything. The guy with the pearl, 
all of his other pearls. Imagine how much time and work and effort that he has taken to collect all the pearls that he has currently. And he says, I'm getting rid of all of them because I just want this one. They were willing to do anything to get this treasure. Both of these men knew that the treasure that they had found was worth more than anything that they had currently by themselves or anything that they could get or do with what they had currently. The treasure was worth more than all of that. The treasure was worth more than anything that they had by themselves. So my question is to you, what lesser pearls are you holding on to that is keeping you from that pearl of great price? What lesser pearls are you keeping, you're holding on to, that won't allow you to follow the pearl of great price? I'll say it again, and then we'll be done. If Jesus is worth anything, then he's worth everything. That's what following Jesus means.